This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. You're about to hear an interview with historians Professor Michelle Arrow and Professor Frank Bongiorno. They joined me to talk about the disturbing new history wars which have seen Australia's national cultural institutions suffer severe cumulative funding cuts over decades. These cuts have been affecting several national cultural institutions. For example, the National Library of Australia has taken an unprecedented step and closed access to its manuscript collections for seven months to repair a leaking roof. Michelle and Frank discuss the enormous effects this will have on the work of academics, students and historians, as well as the national cultural policy to be developed and what needs to change to protect our nation's heritage and cultural institutions. Now we're going to jump into my conversation with two guests I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking with before. Dr. Michelle Arrow is a professor in modern history at Macquarie University and Dr. Frank Bongiorno is professor of history at the Australian National University. They both also have other roles, including the fact that Frank is the president of the Australian Historical Association and Michelle is the vice president of the Australian Historical Association, which is really the peak body for Australian history and um, historians and the discipline of history. So it's really lovely to have both of you on the program again to talk about what is such a vital issue. It's all kind of surrounding this constant theme and ongoing issue we've seen in the news around the underfunding and funding cuts to our national institutions, especially those based up in Canberra, like the National Library of Australia, the National Gallery of Australia, the National Sound and Film Archives. We've also got the National Portrait Gallery, the National Archives of Australia. There are so many really critical cultural institutions that have been undermined, essentially. Their role and function in society have been undermined. And that really made the news and kind of hit our consciousness when we found out that the National Library's manuscript collection will be closed entirely for seven months from the 5th of September this year up until late March 2023. And this is due to building repairs and the risk of further damage to its manuscript collections. This is because of a leaking roof, which was apparently caused by hail in 2020. It's kind of shocking to think that such a thing could happen in our National Library of Australia, such a, a quite big and imposing building. It's kind of hard to think that there'd be a leaky roof over there. But I wanted to bring both of you in, first of all, and welcome you to the show and then talk about these issues. So welcome, Michelle, and welcome, Frank. Thanks, Amy. Amy, great to be here. Now, you both wrote a fantastic op-ed in the what used to be Fairfax Now Nine Papers, it's called The Real History War is the Attack on Our Archives and Libraries. And I'm sure listeners might have been familiar with the concept of a history war because we remember the history wars of the Howard era uh, and just how damaging they have been. But what is this history war that we're talking about? Frank, you go first and then oh, I can. So, I mean, this is, I guess, a part of a much larger story, the story of the National Library, that is, is a part of a much larger story of neglect of our public institutions, our cultural institutions, many of them based here in Canberra, but serving the nation. And both Michelle and I have been very active in relation also to the National Archives. Um, 
But uh, yes, in, in this particular case, we we um, are very concerned, obviously, about uh, the National Library's situation. We uh, would argue that it, it has been a part of a, a much longer-term neglect of these institutions. They're the institutions that, that carry Australian stories, that allow Australian stories to be told. Um, they contain really some of the most, I guess, precious documents and objects um, in our culture, um, Indigenous, uh, settler, um, a whole range, uh, migrants, um, and to the extent that they are inaccessible to um, to scholars, to ordinary Australians, we would argue that our culture is being impoverished. So, yeah, the, the history wars in the past have often been about those highly charged uh, kinds of things you find in op-eds, in, in uh, newspapers and uh, in conservative magazines and all the rest of it. But we, we would argue that the real history war is is one that is actually, you know, really undermining our capacity to do history and to be aware, to be conscious of, of um, our, our country's past. And, Michelle, there's even an ideological war that's been waged by the coalition governments, as you and Frank say in this piece, for Scott Morrison, Tony Abbott and their ministers, Australian history was a tool in a larger political project to stifle dissent and insist on a single legitimate point of view. And you point out the fact that people, especially those talking about the history curriculum for students, were trying to encourage students to participate in evidence-based debate like you would in the discipline of history rather than just an exercise in rote learning. So could you also address that element, this kind of ideological component to the funding situation and just more broadly the way that history has been approached by the coalition previous governments? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look back at the longer idea of history wars, they really started with in the Howard period where he explicitly addressed history as part of his broader project to kind of shape national identity and kind of present his views around national identity. And I think in that debate, Howard often presented historians as kind of enemies of the nation. They weren't patriotic. They were bringing up this unpleasant aspect of Australian history and they were seeking to divide the nation. And really, in, in the Howard period, it was a lot about debating the legitimacy of, of issues like the stolen generations, of debating um, was there really a, a kind of, were there really frontier conflicts and, and that, that resulted in the loss of Indigenous lives. Of course, all of those things were part of that uh, kind of Howard view of history. I think under Morrison and Abbott in the more recent period, we've really seen a focus on military history and the way that military history is being elevated above all other kinds of history as really the only kind of stories that you need to understand Australian history. So one of the interesting things that we can see across this decade is that the, the Liberal government over the last decade really did kind of um, wage a very particular uh, set of campaigns to elevate military history. If we look at the funding for the War Memorial that happened over the decade, in 2013 the War Memorial got about $90 million a year compared to $255 million for all the other cultural institutions. They now, that funding for the War Memorial over the decade has doubled. You know, so the War Memorial now gets about 200 million, while the 255 million that was available to the national cultural institutions has barely increased. It's gone up by about $5 million over the decade. So they've put their money where their mouth is, and they're really trying to push a, a kind of idea that. ANZAC and military history is the only way, only history that you need to understand. And all the other 
institutions have kind of been, you know, have been left by the wayside in that. So it's been a very blunt instrument, but it's been very effective. You know, these institutions like the National Library, like the National Archives, you know, the National Library's roof is leaking. Uh, the National Archives can't provide documents to researchers within a five-day, you know, within less than a five-day time frame. You know, meanwhile, the War Memorial has been given a very, uh, you know, impressive and, and large extension, $500 million worth, to a very recently um, constructed building. So, you know, we would argue that in their kind of attempts to say historians are waging a history war, they're waging war on, you know, national identity, all the rest of it, we would say that, you know, historians, the real history war is being waged on these institutions because they're the ones that are losing out in this kind of quite explicit campaign, I think, to overfund some aspects of our past and to underfund others. Indeed, yeah. indeed. And the institutions, as you were saying, it's not confined to the National Library. The National Gallery of Australia, it's been reported earlier this year, has a $67 million black hole in its budget mm. and, in fact, has been plagued with leaking roofs and windows which have actually damaged some artworks with one of the reports from the Australian National Audit Office in 2018 really revealing the extent to which their operating budget has been drastically reduced. And similarly, in 2018, the National Portrait Gallery was forced to close once again to fix water leaks. So, you know, it's kind of nuts, I've got to say, to think that, <laughs> you know, we've known about this for a very long time and yet we're still doing it. So why why is this continuing? Why, you know, with all the reporting that we've heard over years and years, are we in this position that we're in? Oh, it's got a lot to do with politics, Amy. Mm. I mean, the point Michelle makes about the elevation of military history isn't politically innocent. It's, it's mm -hmm. uh, is useful to politicians and I wouldn't just include the coalition there. I mean, mm. there's been... In fact, that particular development of the very expensive development of the Australian War Memorial gained bipartisan. Yeah. I mean, an irony I'd point to here too is, I mean, if military history is your thing, the reality here is that the bulk of, uh, you know, military service records of individual uh, service personnel are in the National Archives. Yes. The John papers are in the National Library. So there's a kind of also a slide of hand operating here mm. in which Australian War Memorial is regarded as kind of the only custodian of the country's war history or military yeah. history. In fact, you know, all of these institutions are, uh, are custodians of that as well as of all the other stories that mm. we we should be telling. Um, in terms of the, the physical fabric, um, one of the things you notice in, in Canberra is that a lot of this city went up in the 1960s. Um, it, it's full of 1960s and 1970s buildings. And one of the realities of 1960s and 1970s buildings is that after 50 years, they're, 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 they look a bit like jaded rock stars. Um, they, they're, they're, they're not even... <laughs> They need a bit of patching up, to put it mildly. And, yeah. and so face of the National Library, yeah, on the 20th of January 2020, there was a devastating hailstorm in Canberra that, that, you know, did vast amounts of damage to a vast number of buildings, cars and all the rest of it. But there are also ongoing, continuing problems in the building that are not being properly funded mm -hmm. um, for, 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 for basically repairs. I mean, the library doesn't get uh, a separate budget uh, like a, you know, it doesn't get a budget allocation for actually fixing the building. I mean, it seems almost extraordinary that this could be the case, but the library actually has to find money 
from its general budget, which is really supposed to be there primarily to make these documents available. Mm. It's got to use that money on a continuing basis to actually patch up the building. And, and you know, I would imagine that these are the same kinds of problems that are occurring in these other institutions like the National Gallery. And, yeah, look, um, it, it, it is really worrying because it is jeopardising some of the, the, the holdings of, of these repositories. And, and that, that should be of concern to every Australian, not just those who are really engaged with scholarship. Yes, totally. Mm. Uh, I was reading a piece in the ABC News, uh, which also was talking to the Library's Director General, Mary Louise Ayres. She raised something which shocked me, saying that the Library wasn't able to keep accommodating its growing collection or digitise its archives. And she said that since 2017, the National Library has not received any funds for those archives, including the popular online service Trove, which mm. is just such an essential service. It's something that so many Australians use, whether you're a historian or just an everyday <laughs> person. And I wanted to understand from both of you the significance of that, you know, the significance of digitisation and these services like Trove, but also clearly the in-person manuscript collections where people will literally go into the building and order up a set of boxes and files and, and rifle through them by hand. Yes. I mean, look, one of the things that is frustrating for library users is the the absence of, you know, the fact that we can no longer access for at least seven months the manuscript collections. I'm working on a biography at the moment and I have suddenly had to re sort of redraw my research plans because the material that I look at in the manuscripts collection is not digitised as the bulk of those manuscript collections are not digitised simply because there's just so much material. I mean, the collection I'm looking at is about 100 boxes. It contains so much material that's not likely to get the kind of um, repeat use that justifies, you know, digitising it. So it's simply a matter of going through and, and doing your own research, going through, you know, um, digitising it yourself in some ways for reference copies. But that's probably the case for most researchers, that they're using materials that aren't digitised. Um, and the library itself, of course, is also facing issues that, as you raise, that they can't afford to necessarily expand um, the sorts of material that's available in Trove. Um, so the kind of digitisation is no substitute for the sort of in-person access that most researchers require. Mm. And we've now had a situation where, you know, um, the library was largely closed during the COVID lockdown in 2021. So if you were a PhD student who had been using collections last year, you would have, and, and you were hoping to use them into the future, you would now be looking at about a year and a half where you haven't had any access to that material. And, you know, we like to make the argument that that libraries and archives are the kind of scientific laboratories of historians. They're the places where we do that kind of important primary research and to kind of lock people out of that for such an extended period of time. And also with really almost no notice, I think mm. research has got about five days, to, you know, so there was no way to kind of order ahead or to make sure that you could access materials. I mean, it's pretty devastating in terms of, um, you know, research that it needs to be done in a timely fashion. It's it's not just kind of hobbyists, it's actually people's livelihoods and work that requires this access. Yes, well, not everyone lives in Canberra either. I know so many no. people make special trips to the library, you know, just for a week to go up yes. and do that work. So, yeah, it's a very organised thing to go up there. And I myself have used that collection and it, as you say, you cannot replace it with digitisation. It's something that you absolutely have to 
to go in person yeah. to do. And Frank, also let's let's address what Michelle has just mentioned because the Australian Historical Association put out a media release when they discovered this news about the closure of the manuscript collection um, and just how much it was going to affect historians, but as Michelle has said, postgraduate students and other researchers. What is the position of the Australian Historical Association in relation to this? And has the National Library provided any workarounds at all for people who find themselves in such a dire situation? Yeah, there aren't terribly many workarounds available, Amy. I mean, the the library, of course, is sympathetic to the problems that researchers now face. And, and yes, I mean, um, many are in, in, in situations such as Michelle just described of having a, a funded project that, that basically, um, in, in some respects at least, has to be put on hold for long periods of time. PhD students who are also, you know, funded for by scholarships and all the rest of it who aren't able to complete their work. Honours students who have to complete their work in a, a thesis in a very concentrated period of perhaps a year are obviously very disadvantaged by this. So the AHA has, you know, obviously great concerns about historians in that situation. These are our members, really, and uh, you know we we um, are obviously going to do what we can to work with them uh, to liaise with the library to find workarounds where they're available, but. Um, you know, when you're dealing with unique materials, such as you find in the manuscripts room, the the number of sort of um, alternatives or options for sort of getting around these sorts of problems is pretty is pretty limited, actually. Um, and yeah, look, digitisation um, is is a blessing, I think, for for um, researchers in all sorts of ways. But yeah, we need to recognise here too that that Trove um, has run out of funding. I mean, Trove is one of the great digitisation projects, not just in this country, but in the world. It is it is a world-class project, um, one of the, the really important um, databases globally, but it, it has no money. And so it's not going to be further developed uh, to any great extent until it's, it's properly funded and until government is willing to invest in it. I mean, philanthropic money is simply not going to fill that sort of gap. So, you know, we, we support, the AHA supports digitisation um, we, we love the way that it, it provides opportunities for people around the country to gain access to, to uh, material in the National um, Library who would otherwise find it difficult to get to Canberra, expensive to, to get to Canberra. It's not a solution to every problem and it's certainly, um, it's, 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 it has a limited capacity, I guess, to, to do the work that we'd like it to do if governments aren't actually willing to pay for it because digitisation is, is in fact, really expensive. I mean, it's not simply a, a matter of, uh, you know, sort of a photo a photo image here and there. I mean, really substantial digitisation projects are quite costly and yeah. uh, you require government support. And certainly they're handling very fragile materials sometimes. Just to give one example, I can vouch that the Trove archive, while being very extensive, you know, there are plenty of gaps that could be filled if there was funding available. There's many country newspapers from Victoria that aren't on Trove or that only have, you know, four years on Trove and then there's a big gap and you have to go out to a museum in the middle of nowhere to use their microfilm, (laughs) which I just did on my holidays. You know, so there is such a, a need for more funding and I note that the last paragraph of your media release calls on the present government to inject emergency funding into the national cultural institutions. 
have you heard or had any response back from government or even heard any inklings from government that there is an intention, given an October budget is coming, to inject even temporary funding into the National Library? Not yet. Not yet. I mean, I think that it's it's probably the situation where, I mean, I can only imagine the demands that are being made on the government at the moment in terms of, you know, because this sector is not the only sector that has faced a decade of, of you know, neglect. Um, and so we haven't heard anything yet. I suspect it may be more of a long-term project related to the development of national cultural policy because mm. strengthening the national cultural in- or strengthening cultural institutions is one of the named planks of the arts policy that is in development at the moment. So I'm not writing it off yet. I think we're still, you know, we, sh- we should still... Um, be optimistic or at least hopeful for some change, but at the moment there hasn't been anything announced. Yeah, and I do note that in your piece you say that there is unfortunately a bipartisanship in the lack of funding, in a historical sense at least, with Labor's introduction of efficiency dividends in the late 1980s, laying the foundations for the present crisis. Um, And then, as you say, the Coalition inflicted deeper funding cuts over the past decade, which will all recall if we've been following this issue. So given that history of both sides contributing to the problem and the the Treasurer's indications that he's trying to cut the budget, not increase the budget, it is, I think, probably concerning for some. Are you worried that it might be too late by the time that the cultural policy is developed and we get to perhaps the May budget next year? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Amy. I mean, the whole lateness issue also came up in relation to the National Archives because, mm. and the other place is the National um, uh, Film and Sound Archives. Mm. Yes, I mean, they in particular have quite a lot of uh, resources, audiovisual, that quite frankly, if they're not digitised soon, they're gone forever. Um, and, and that's that's a, a major worry in relation to um, to funding. I mean, if, if the funding comes too late, material like that uh, will potentially be be lost. You know, our, our grand film heritage. Uh, you know, and the National Archives too. Uh, mm. As I, you know, we we um, were involved in a campaign that was very much focused on those issues of of preservation. I mean, in terms of the forthcoming budgets, I don't think there's terribly much expectation about October, which is a, a government effectively announcing various uh, initiatives, I think, coming out of its election promises. I think if, if anything is going to happen, it's going to be May. So that, that's the one that I guess we're really hanging out for and really looking to, to provide the kinds of um, support and relief that we hope might be coming. I, I was very interested in your comment, Amy, about the four years of country newspapers. And, of course, we know which four years they are, don't we? It's 1914. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, again, it's a kind of elevation of military heritage and how wonderful it is to be able to look at that material. I mean, I was able to find out what my family had been doing up in the Wimra in that period. But the reality is that, yeah. Um, I wanted the 19th century, by the way, so I wasn't very interested in World War One. <laughs> We want, we want the rest of it as well. Yeah. And what a what a great resource it would be to have more of those. But mm. it can happen unless unless governments are willing to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the national cultural policy and the development of this because that is something that Labor has been pushing for. And clearly, in the arts and cultural space, we've been drifting 
Very much. And the coalition government seems to have been all over the place with arts and culture and certainly not paid as much attention as traditionally a Labor government would to this area. We have seen a group of experts put together and thankfully we now do have a historian on that panel. So that's really exciting. But I wanted to get your sense, both of you, as to what some of the priorities will be or should be for that body when they're thinking about the role of history and historians in the development of a national cultural policy? Look, I mean, I think one of the things that is, that's worth saying, I think, to begin with is that, you know, we really have had a pretty piecemeal approach to culture over the last decade. And I think that it's important to sort of revive um, the national cultural policy that the Labor Party introduced, I think shortly before they were voted out of office last time. So it's kind of interesting, I think, that they're seeking to revise rather than reinvent, you know, entirely the policy. And I think it's it's going to be an updating of the, of the older policy. Um, I think one of the things that we saw under the previous government was often a not just piecemeal approach, but kind of letting things go to a point where they fell into almost total disrepair and then they could kind of come in and be the hero, like the Film and Sand Archive, like the National Archives, pushed to the point where they they sort of had to, um, you know, in, reintroduce some funding or, or restore funding that had been removed. So it's great, I think, to see a more wholehearted approach to cultural policy being um, implemented under this um, government. And I think... You know the the submission that we made to the to the um, the groups that were seeking feedback about the policy was really to kind of uh, say that history underpins so many of the aspects of the national cultural policy, um, both in terms of thinking about the kind of ways that historians have, um, you know, worked to diversify, I guess, the ways that Australian history is understood, um, the ways that the the role of the national cultural institutions in terms of audience development and and kind of thinking about um, the role of historians as workers, as writers, those things. But I think particularly one of the things that is is heartening to see in the the kind of draft cultural policy is the national cultural institutions. And one of the things that we made a, a strong case in relation to this is to kind of restore some of the specific subject area expertise to those national cultural institutions. If you're going to have a look at the the boards and advisory councils of a number of the national cultural institutions, they're full of all kinds of interesting people, but there's very few historians, museum experts, subject matter experts on those panels. And I think one one of the things I suspect is that a lot of these um, board appointments, as they often are for both sides of politics, are seen as kind of political prizes, like little things to be doled out to people who you like and, you know, things like that. We're saying that we really think it's very important that these institutions take advantage of the expertise that, you know, is out there in the art sector, in the academic community and kind of restore um, some sort of uh, rigour, I think, to those institutional um, governing bodies. Mm. Frank, and also I'd love it if you could comment on your um, proposition about the Australian War Memorial moving portfolios as well. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, to take that one, um, I mean, we feel that one of the things that's driving um, the, the misallocation of resources, you know, the fact mm. that the War Memorial is getting so much and the rest of them so little, um, is that they're in different portfolios. I mean, basically... Uh, the War Memorial sits in Veterans Affairs within the larger defence portfolio. Um, most of the institutions, not all of the other cultural institutions, but all of the big ones that we've been talking about, basically, in that portfolio whose name keeps changing. Uh, sometimes <laughs> the occasion, I think, 
there was a period under the, the previous government where the word arts wasn't mentioned from mm. memory. Mm -hmm. So we feel that, and, and, you know, others have made this case, you know, over, over the long haul, that if it were to sit within um, the arts portfolio, it would actually be possible to think about it in terms of a broader arts and cultural policy. I mean, the AWM is, is um, very important to veterans and, and veterans' families, but it's, it's a possession for the whole country. I mean, that's why it was put there. Uh, that's why it was, it was created uh, back in the 1920s and 30s. It was meant to be something for the nation. And, and so there isn't a strong justification, really, for it sitting within uh, uh, veterans' affairs or, or defence. Um, and, and that, of course, also, yes, it affects the broader issue of, of the representation on boards. Uh, I don't think there's any historian on the board of the Australian War Memorial. There is uh, none on the, um, the National Museum of Australia yeah. um, for the last five or six years, which the minister, Tony Burke, has actually remarked on as, as absurd. So he's presumably got that one in his sights. Uh, the National Archives doesn't have a university-based historian. So, you know, that, that is... It is amazing. And, yeah. and it, it, it's hard to know whether it's more symptom of the problem or cause, perhaps a mm. bit of both, but um, it is something that we do have in our sites, we, we believe. It's, it's in, there's a lot of expertise out there and a lot of experience also in running institutions uh, uh, that that could be brought in, um, you know, to to engage, I think, more closely with the kinds of issues that we've been talking about today. I mean, business people, lawyers, fantastic, but they're mm. not really um, users of archives and libraries in in the way that scholars are. And I think that it's important that there are people who are experienced, you know, actually have hands-on experience of using these resources and using these institutions who are there on on the cultural boards. Indeed. Just to close out this discussion, um, finally, you reflect in the end of your piece about the broader implications of this issue, you know, the underfunding, the War Memorial being in the wrong portfolio, you know, the efficiency dividends mm. that are ongoing from decades ago. This is certainly going to have effects on our democracy, on our understanding of our own stories. Uh, so, Michelle, perhaps you can um, mm. just reflect just finally on what you think these broader implications are for our understanding of ourselves as a country. Yeah, I think one of the things that is really important to remember that these organisations, the national cultural institutions, have a statutory role, which is to protect, preserve, collect, maintain the records of our history. And they collect priceless and irreplaceable, you know, um, visual documentary heritage. They, they do this role for us and we should be able to trust that they can be funded sufficiently to do that properly because they hold that material in trust, not just for us, but for everyone who will, you know, everyone who come will, will come to Australia after us, you know, that this is a really important role and at the moment these institutions are simply not funded to do that role to do their kind of that crucial role for Australian democracy and for kind of you know um, citizenship it's a really important uh, role that they play and I worry that if we are kind of locking up this material in a way that people can't consult it or access it I mean one of the things that's really lovely when you go to the National Library Manuscripts Room you often see people members of the public just come in and they kind of want to sort of say what, what are you having here and they kind of look at the maps and the walls and they look at the you know materials that they see and that's everybody's right to be able to do that so I just think that if we make this a kind of elite concern that is only available to a very small number of people then that 
diminishes all of us. We all have the right to see this material and historians and researchers have the right to use it. And I think mm. we have to be able to maintain um, access and, and preserve these collections appropriately for our for the future. Well, thank you both for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure again to speak with you, even if it is on such a very dire topic. And uh, I really appreciate all your advocacy on these topics as well. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you, Amy. I've just been speaking with Michelle Arrow, Professor in Modern History at Macquarie Uni, and Frank Bongiorno, Professor of History at the Australian National University and also representatives of the Australian Historical Association. And we've been talking about a whole range of issues relating to our national cultural institutions. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.